If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 511. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but it's free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, you can purchase one of my courses there. I've got nearly 20, so it helps keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, both great ways to support the show. You can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great educational website. Lots of great ways to support the show, but as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And we've got a big episode, right? This is a listener-generated episode, and and I knew I'd have to talk about this because people were going to send me materials on it. And I didn't know exactly what direction to take with this because I could go after the left that's attacking Robert E. Lee or I could go after the right that's attacking Robert E. Lee because they sound nearly the same. Now, sir, sure, the, the even there are, there are those on the right. I mean, Donald Trump came out with a statement that said, you know, the taking down of Lee's statue in Richmond was a travesty. Um, that Lee was a great American, et cetera, et cetera. So we do have people that on the right, Trump, and then of course even Claremont, uh, the the Claremont Review of Books had an had an article defending Lee uh, recently. Uh, but this is now a little bit it's too little, too late, uh, and that's the point. I mean, people like Victor Davis Hanson have been bashing the Confederacy for years. He's the Hillsdale Claremont School. You've got. Uh, People like Forrest Neighbors who wrote a book bashing the Confederacy and Confederate monuments. These things should come down. I mean, this is this is too little too late. These people bought in to the leftist idiocy of America. And now they're reaping what they sow, which is monuments coming down. Let me say this. I'll say this about monuments. When you get to a point where you have to, again, decide who's good and who's bad... And how do you decide that? In fact, at that point, all monuments should just come down. There should be no monuments to any individual in America. Because you can't have it. I mean, because I could come up with an argument that that, that thing offends me, and so therefore it should come down. And why should the offended always get to decide what monuments come down? And this is going to be in the piece that I'm going to talk about from the right. Again, I could get into the lefty arguments, but I've done that so many times, it's just kind of boring. These people are delusional. One thing I found very funny, um, you have lefties like Kasim uh, Rashid, or Rashid Kasim, which one is it? It's Kasim yeah, Rashid, I'm sorry. Kasim Rashid, who ran for Congress and lost twice in Virginia. He calls himself a Virginian. He self-identifies as Virginian. Now, he's a Pakistani immigrant. So he, he settled in the United States. His family moved here when he was... 
younger. I want to say he was even a teenager when this happened. I don't know exactly when, but uh, they came to Washington, D.C., and then, of course, they moved to Virginia. So now he's a quote-unquote Virginian. He self-identifies as a Virginian. He's not really a Virginian, but he put out this very interesting quote, and somebody said on September 8th, real Virginians aren't named Rashid. And he said, Virginians are named Rashid. They're also named Muhammad, like Private Muhammad Khan. Now, Muhammad Khan is thrown out there. Anytime people want to talk about how egalitarian and glorious the Union was, I mean, these people are just, these Union guys are just so good. Look, they had a Muslim fighting for them. In fact, there was a book written on this back in 2007, Muslims Who Have Served in the United States or in United States Wars. And the author went out and looked at the roles of Civil War, quote-unquote, Civil War soldiers on both sides. <laughs> and the funny thing was, if the way that Rashid phrases this and, of course, puts it out there, that Muslims fought for the Union because the Union was this glorious, egalitarian society. And isn't that great? He also praises John Brown as a great man, uh, the homicidal maniac John Brown. This is, this is the left now. This is the New Virginian. Now, New Virginia is important. These people are calling themselves New Virginians because Old Virginia is bad. New Virginia, though, is good. And there are some, that phrase is actually now used, New Virginia. So they bring out, they, they dust off Muhammad Khan. What they don't mention is that of the, of the, in this book, now this person, exhaustive study of Muslims fighting in American wars, and there are Muslims fighting in all American wars. I mean, this is, this is known. What he points out is that of the 200 and some odd people he could find that had Islamic names or Muslim names, and they're not certain all these people were Muslims. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but they had names that would maybe indicate they were. Ten can documented 10 fought for the confederacy and four for the union in segregated units so here we have muhammad khan fighting in a segregated unit whereas there's no evidence that any of these muslims in the south were fighting in segregated units but there were 10 of them so would these people then be anti-american because if you listen to people like uh casey michelle all these people are anti-American. Michel is hilarious because Michel doesn't, he's so stupid, he can't even figure out some things. He, he wrote this article for the New Republic where he said in there, well, you know, it, having Confederate monuments across the South would be like the British having monuments all over the place to George Washington. I guess Casey Michel is not aware that there is a statue of George Washington in London. And it was put there in the early 20th century. But you know who really admired George Washington? George III. George III admired George Washington. Thought he was a great guy. Thought he was worthy of respect. Even though he fought a war against Great Britain, he thought George Washington was worthy of respect. And so you have a statue of George Washington in London, it was put there in 1921, but still it's there. And so this just blows apart his entire argument. Now, yeah, there's no George Washington all over the place. There's no George Washington all over the place, but George Washington, this would be, I mean, yeah, having, but see, Robert E. Lee is in Richmond, which was the capital of the Confederacy. 
right? So th this was the Confederacy. The pe all these monuments are in honor of people that fought for the Confederacy from those states. This is where the argument is just so, oh, this is like pox across the United States. All these people putting up these Confederate monuments. These are anti-American. That's not what people at the time said. Now, there was this question of treason. Did Robert E. Lee commit treason? Did Jefferson Davis commit treason? I could go into that argument and do an entire podcast on that and how I would say no. But the fact is, uh, they, they certainly were still regarded highly regarded even by Northerners. E.L. Godkin, who was kind of a libertarian conservative, but certainly pro-Union, anti-slavery, pro-Union, loved Stonewall Jackson, loved him, greatly admired him, thought he was the best of the American character. A Northerner. E.L. Godkin. Now, immigrant, but still someone who admired Stonewall Jackson. And Lee was admired across the North as well over time. I mean, it, look, when the wounds, and the, 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 the uh, hard part of war is still there, people are going to say things, oh, I mean, this guy. But over time, even Southerners began to admire Abraham Lincoln over time. It takes time. Time heals wounds. But Northern soldiers thought that putting up these Confederate monuments wasn't a bad idea at all. In fact, many of them attended the ceremonies. The most famous example of this was the Confederate monument put up in Chicago when Grover Cleveland was president, attended by 100,000 people there. And it's in a cemetery to honor the Confederate dead that died in a Union prisoner of war camp because they were starved and frozen to death. I mean, nice people, these Union guys. And uh, the... The fact is, uh, you had Union and Confederate veterans there shaking hands, saying, "Okay, this is we're gonna we're gonna honor the dead. This is what it's really all about." And Robert E. Lee was a great American. So people like Casey Michelle and all these other nincompoops on the left who really don't know what they're talking about, and of course, Kasim uh, Rashid saying, "Well, Lee killed hundreds of thousands of anti-slavery Americans. How do we know that?" We had a lot of slave owners. There were a number of slave owners fighting for the Union. Were they anti-slavery? They were slave owners, so does that mean they're anti-slavery? Uh, we know that when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, you had mass desertions in the Union Army. Um, was, does that mean these people were um, anti-slavery? Obviously not. So this is, it's hyperbole. It's, it's hyperbole. Rashid is stupid. Casey Michel is stupid. These people are stupid. There's no other way to describe them. They're stupid. And they don't really understand the complexities of history. They don't understand it at all. Casey Michelle is hilarious because he loves Ulysses S. Grant, and he posted on Twitter the other day, um, he said that uh, he posted a quote by J.F.C. Fuller denouncing, saying Lee was a bad general and Grant's a great general. I don't think he realizes who J.F.C. Fuller is. J.F.C. Fuller was a fascist in Great Britain. He, he was in favor of fascism. So here is a fascist lauding Grant and putting down Lee when this guy is supposed to be anti-fascist. He's saying Lee is anti-American, essentially equating that with fascism. This is what they do, but they don't even know. They're so stupid, they can't even, they, they don't even realize what they're doing half the time. So the fascists love Grant. They didn't like Lee a whole lot, but they love Grant and they love Lincoln. The fascists love those people. Why? Because they're Unitarians. They believe in excessive power. 
And that's why they like him. This is Casey Michelle's also the guy that wrote that Biden could learn something from from Grant from uh, Grant, and he should go out and basically just go and punish all of these uh, all of these traitors after January sixth. So the left, we could talk about that all day, but I want to get into this piece by Russell Moore. This was sent to me by a colleague of mine. He said, "Hey, look, you should talk about this." Russell Moore is a a as a prominent member of the. Christian community, and when I say that, I mean he is a, he is an opinion maker, and he wrote a piece uh, for uh, the Christian Christianity Today website entitled "Good Riddance to the Robert E. Lee Statue," published September 9th, twenty twenty one. And I want to get into this because there's a couple of logical fallacies from the beginning in this particular piece. One is false dichotomy, and the other is the appeal to authority. Now, I will say this. Appeal to authority is something that a lot of people use. And is it a fallacy or not? If you take a logic 101 class or take a logic class, they're going to talk about appeal to authority as being a fallacy of logic. And in many ways, it can be a fallacy of logic. Because uh, if you appeal to authority and that is the basis of your argument, just because this person said so, well, you are losing the argument. And we do this. I mean, there's always now, you could say this historian said this, but did did that historian actually get it right? Or is that historian even an expert in that particular area? Historians say all kinds of things. They're not, they're not an expert in that area. Maybe their expertise, and I, I've seen this, their, their expertise is Latin American history, but they're going to write about how bad the Confederacy was. Right? I've seen this over and over again. This happens all the time. So they're basing their arguments from their perspective, right? They're on which could be skewed in one direction. Historians are biased. So is that really a good a good authority to appeal to? Or you could say this president said this or this president said that. Now, again, if you have a number of these things coming together, you might get some consensus on something and then you could say, well, the authority is based on consensus, but and then again, is it simply just a fallacy of logic, though, still? Is it true? Just because a lot of people say it doesn't mean it's true. So it could be a fallacy of logic. And Russell Moore engages in that quite heavily in this particular piece, which I think is dangerous. Now, the person he cites I actually find quite interesting. Uh, and... But there's, there's, now, this is Russell Moore, the Christian. The person that he cites is not necessarily regarded highly in the Christian community. Um, he's a great agrarian, a great poet, a man of letters, but is he someone who uh, Christians would generally go to and say, hey, this is, I need, I need you, I need an opinion as a Christian. What should I do here? So let me get into this piece, and I'll, and I'll point out these fallacies of logic when I get there. This week, Robert E. Lee, at long last, retreated from Richmond. The statue of the Confederate general on Monument Avenue in Richmond was removed from its pedestal as citizens of the city cheered from the streets. Watching the granite gray warhorse suspended in the air prompted me to think of a conversation I once had about whether a picture of Lee in a seminary dorm room should stay or go. It reminded me of this, of this picture in this dorm room. 
First of all, again, I would ask the question, why do the naysayers, why do the, why do the mob, why does the mob get to decide if something's offensive or not? This is where no shut up needs to be involved here. No shut up. This should be a teachable moment, a teaching moment to say, well, this is why Lee is great. I wrote about Lee in my Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. I think Lee is an American hero. And why is Lee great? It's a teachable moment. Instead of capitulating to a bunch of whiners and petulant little children, which is what these people are, it should have said, okay, no, wait a second here. Lee is great for these reasons. And of course, then you've got, and I saw it the other day, I pull up my, go to my internet browser, I pull up, and there's the myth of the kindly General Lee, one of the articles I should read. And I've already blasted that thing to bits in a piece I wrote entitled Robert E. Lee versus Twitter Historians. You can get that in Southern Scribblings, by the way. So the fact is, look, my position on Lee is quite well known. I think Lee was a great American, and Lee deserves statues. In fact, if you want to just appeal to authority, there's a lots of people in, in world history that have said Lee is a great man. And it's not based on what other people said about Lee. It's looking at what, who Lee was and his life and what he said and what he did. So here is this particular, I'll continue with this piece. A student had written to me to ask about a painting he had of Lee. I believe the painting was a family heirloom, and if I remember correctly, there may have been a family connection to Lee himself. He said that a fellow ministry student, an African-American man, winced when he saw the painting in the hallway of the seminary apartment. So here we have a guy writing to Russell Moore, saying, hey, I, I, this, this uh, African-American student, winced when he saw it and here is my painting of Lee this is a, I'm I'm related to Lee and I admire Lee and so I want to have a picture of Lee up this is my tradition this is my family this is my connection to the past but this guy is wincing at it so he asked the white southern student asked me should I take it down I responded that he should and then I gave biblical and historical reasons as to why I didn't think that Lee and the other Confederate leaders were worthy of honor. Now, let me pause there for a second. He's going to use biblical and historical reasons. What historical reasons? He doesn't really get into detail as what those historical reasons are. Why he thought Lee and the Confederacy were bad. Historical reasons based on what? Based on his understanding of history. Probably skewed by some other historian who had an agenda and axe to grind and said some things about the Confederacy and about the South. You see, Southerners would make the case that they were not fighting against the United States. They were fighting for it. Just as the, the American founders would say, they weren't fighting against the British. They were fighting for it. They were fighting for the ancient constitutions as they understood it. They were fighting for those things that they thought were understood to be part of the American political tradition, the Anglo-American political tradition. Now, I'm going to get it to the false dichotomy here in a minute, but I want to touch on this biblical reasons why the Confederacy was bad. You see, there are also people in the South who argued biblical, gave biblical justifications for the Confederacy. And I go back, and there was a Confederate general named Henry D. Lamar Clayton. He, D. Lamar, Henry D. Lamar Clayton. He was from Alabama. In fact, he was uh, president of the University of Alabama at one point. Uh, his descendant was responsible for the Clayton Antitrust Act during the uh, Wilson administration, which, of course, helped produce uh, the income tax the way that we know it today. 
So Henry de Lamar Clayton had a wife uh, named uh, uh, Virginia Clayton, and she wrote a book in 1890, I want to say, entitled White and Black Under the Old Regime. And this particular book is interesting because it's a memoir of what happened and what she thought was going on in the South and how she defended different things. And you read it and you think, well, I mean, that's uh, we, we don't like that. I mean, there are things you get any kind of, ooh, that's a little harsh on some things. It's pretty rough language at times. But one thing, one thing she said really s- struck me as, as uh, interesting. When, they, when she got to the issue of slavery, she said, we didn't defend slavery in a mere abstraction. It wasn't an abstraction to us. We defended it because this is what the this is what we were told was right every Sunday when we went to church. Because the defense of slavery in America was based on many things, economics, there was an economic defense of it, there was a racial defense of it. These things were certainly used north and south. In fact, the first defense of slavery came in 1701 in Boston, Massachusetts from a man named John Saffin who was a minister, right? 1701, Boston, Massachusetts, a minister. One of the arguments made was that it Christianizes these barbarous people as they thought they were. So nowadays we're going to look at that and say, oh my gosh, that's horrible language. That's rough. I mean, we'll call people barbarous or bad people based on race. But at the time, this is what they thought. And so she said the biblical defense of slavery was the strongest defense all throughout the 19th century. So here is Russell Moore saying, well, I cite scripture. Well, Southerners like Thornwell could have said, well, I'm going to cite scripture to show that it's right. So this is, again, interpretation of scripture and history. And this indiv- He's trying to prove that this individual, this, this is actually evil what he's doing here. He's saying to this young man who admires Lee and a family connection to it, You're wrong. You're wrong to admire your family members. You're wrong. You're wrong to admire them. This is coming from a Christian leader. He tries to qualify it, and I'll get into that. But he's saying this individual is wrong. They're not worthy of honor. If this is your family, he is not worthy of honor. Russell Moore should have been told to his face, you're evil for saying that to somebody. There was one person, though, whose opinion I wanted to seek, and that was the bard of Henry County, Kentucky, Wendell Berry. Now, Wendell Berry, interesting writer. Uh, Wendell Berry is certainly, I mean, important when it comes to agrarianism, localism. He is a, a very interesting person to read and write about, and to listen to. He also uh, is has written some stuff that's pretty salacious, and Christians uh, would be be well to uh, to know that going into it. Um, he's not really that pro traditional Christianity, uh, though I do think that his positions on farming and the local and all that that's good stuff. You got you got to take and piece stuff out here. Around the time I had sent my response to that student, I was out at the poet and novelist farm where at his kitchen table I awkwardly brought up the subject of Lee. I say awkwardly because I was quite sure that Barry would disagree with my counsel. 
After all, I just read a defense he'd made of Lee, and I was sure he would think that the picture's removal was one more example of a mobilized and rootless modern society that refused to even remember remember the past. Other than the one essay, however, I really had no reason to guess his response. Barry, after all, is an agrarian writer, but decidedly not in the strain of Moonlight and Magnolia's Southern agrarianism, which at best white watches and at worst romanticizes the violent white supremacist caste system of old Dixie. Now, here is the false dichotomy, because by saying it's subtle, but by saying that this is what the South was, there is an opposite to that, which is the egalitarian, non-racist North or Midwest. You see, I don't think Russell Moore even understands the history of America, as he should. Maybe he does, I don't know. But looking at that statement, you're creating a false dichotomy, which is a fallacy of logic. There's no other side of this. The South was representative of America in terms of race in the 19th century. Jim Crow was invented in the North. In fact, you can go back into Connecticut in the antebellum period, before 1860, and find the use of the term Jim Crow when we're talking about segregated rail cars. Southerners would go into places like Connecticut, and they would have an African-American with them, and they would have to be split up because the African-American would have to ride in a different car than the white Southerner. This was mandated by law in Connecticut, right? You had places in the North where blacks weren't even allowed to live, or they had to pay a fine and show good behavior over a amount of time. It's a great website, Slave North. I think it's slavenorth.org. I think that's what it is, slavenorth.org. The, the uh, author there gets into all these instances of racism in the North. Leon Litvak's book, uh, Bernweger's book. I mean, these, these are important books on these, on these particular issues. So... Moore has created a false dichotomy, South against North. That the North was better in all these things I just said. Well, the Confederacy is bad because of these historical things that I'm going to bring up. They would say they were fighting for the ancient principles, the ancient constitution. This is the things that they said. That's what they were fighting for. James McPherson has even... James McPherson, who could never be confused for being pro-Confederate and is for cause and comrades, points out that the average Southerner was fighting for hearth and home against their own enslavement by the North, for the principles of the American founding. These are things that they were fighting for. Some were fighting for slavery, certainly. Lee was not. And I've pointed this out over and over again. Lee was not. And the other thing that people miss is that you had two slaveholding republics fighting each other in 1861-1865 because... There were still slaveholding states in the Union in 1865 when the war ended. So you had two slaveholding republics fighting it out. So which one's right and which one's wrong? This is people like Kasim. They, they forget that too. They, they create a false dichotomy. Anti-slavery against pro-slavery. It wasn't that easy. Still, I found the author's 1970s-era essay on Lee inconsistent. He portrayed the general as an exemplar of someone facing the choice between principle and community. When he resigned his commission in the United States Army to join the Confederate cause, to bury Lee's motivation was not a defense of slavery, but rather a refusal to go to war against his relatives in his home of Virginia. The author concluded the general was right. Well, this is exactly what Lee did. Now, you've got people like 
Elizabeth Pryor saying, no, 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 no. He had plenty of other Union guys in his family. That I mean, people in the Lee family, they were surprised and shocked at General Lee for uh, Robert E. Lee for siding with the Confederacy. They thought he would go. I mean, his father, after all, was so pro-Union. George Washington's right-hand man. How could this guy just I think that he was going to fight for? He was against the, the thing that his father actually wanted. He was going against his ancestors. As a highly principled man, Barry wrote of Lee, he could not bring himself to renounce the very ground of his principles, and devoted to that ground as he was, he held in himself much of his region's hope of the renewal of principle. He seems to me to have been an exemplary American choice, one that placed the precise Jeffersonian vision of a rooted devotion to community and homeland above the abstract feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen. Notice that Barry uses this Jeffersonian vision of a rooted devotion to community. That is important. Now, most of the Lees were Federalists. They wouldn't be confused with Jeffersonians. But this idea of loyalty to community, loyalty to community. Now, what Moore is going to try to do is twist that and say, well, the community now reflects this opposition to Lee. So this is the new Virginia. So we should go with that community over the old community. And if that's the case, we're doomed. If that's the case, we're going to base this on the changing times, we're doomed. You see, again, this is a teachable moment for Moore to say to this, to this African-American student and put them together. Say, look, explain why you think this is great and tell the African-American student, this is why Lee is great and this is why you should, I mean, people want to honor Lee. This is what America was. This is what they thought about honor and principle. But no, they capitulate because they don't want to be called bad names. Essentially, that's what this comes down to. They don't want to be called bad names. And that student might have again called him a bad name when in reality he's not. But being called bad names is awful. And so nobody wants that. I don't want that. Nobody wants that. But there's right and wrong in this particular situation. And the fact is, What's to stop somebody if they had a picture of some other hero? I mean, you can take your pick of any, any hero. Maybe it's Frederick Douglass. Maybe it's Martin Luther King on, uh, for someone who's idolizing them from one other side. And I could say that offends me. So should that picture come down? Well, we would say, no, it shouldn't. It shouldn't come down. Why? It offends me. Well, you would look at me and say, well, let's have a teachable moment here. Let's talk about why, these people, why Frederick Douglass should be worthy of honor. Well, why can't you do the same thing with Lee? Lee would provide a teachable moment of a man who Booker T. Washington thought was worthy of honor. Now, you could say that Washington was just trying to get along in society, but maybe he wasn't. Maybe he actually saw it that way. I mean, was he right or wrong? We can, we can debate that. But the fact is, this is a teachable moment that Mr. Moore missed. He said, Barry was right, it seems to me, that morality is grounded best in what he would call membership rather than in abstractions. Where he was wrong, though, was in seeing the boundaries of that membership. The precise evil that Lee fought to maintain was a community in which some people were seen as members and others are seen as property to be exploited and tortured. Well, again, Russell Moore um, doesn't really, un if he, he's never read Genovese, he's never read Fogel and Engerman. Those historians for years pointed out that, yes, horrible things happened to slaves in the antebellum South. That cannot be denied at all. But by 1860, it had virtually disappeared. Torture had disappeared. 
had disappeared in the American South. And if you use this term exploitation, would that not count wage workers as well? Were they not being heavily exploited, being being paid pittance, barely survivable wages? They're being exploited all the time. They're being exploited. So what do we have here? And saying that Lee was evil, the precise evil, this would again create a false dichotomy. Were black Americans not considered unequal members in Northern society? Of course they were. Even after the war, they were. What about women? They were seen as unequal members in society in the North. In fact, Elizabeth Cady Stanton openly complained about this. Wait, 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 wait. We fought this war. We thought we were going to get all these concessions. All you've done is give black men the ability to vote. What about women? We're still unequal members in society then. So are we? Are they exploited? The women said they were. Just This is a plug for my new class coming up in October, 25 Speeches That Changed America. I'm going to talk about the Seneca Falls Declaration, which is a speech, essentially. I'm going to talk about that because it was saying these exact things that Russell Moore is saying that the North was fighting to against, but yet they had themselves. So what is it? He's creating false dichotomies, and he's appealing to authority. Who is Wendell Berry? Well, Wendell Berry is an author, a novelist. Is he an authority on Robert E. Lee? Is he authority on these things? No, but we're appealing to his authority because Wendell Berry said this, well, then we should do it. Lee's place in this story can be seen in his decision to take up arms against the Union in defense of a slave system. That's not what he did. And by the way, we still had slavery in the Union at that particular time. In defense of a slave system. That was in many states, even in the northern state, what we consider union states. Uh, so Lee said himself he wasn't doing that in his appeal to his men in September of 1861. But it's even more evident in the way his image has become iconic of the lost cause white backlash against black civil rights. And you know who he cites in this? The Atlantic. (laughs) The Atlantic. Here is a conservative. I guess he called himself a conservative. Citing The Atlantic. The Atlantic, which is a rabid leftist magazine. The reason white nationalists streamed into Charlottesville at the the 2017 Unite the Right rally was over Confederate monuments. Well, ostensibly. But when you have to coach people up, and I've seen videos of this, these morons on a bus having to be coached up on the the lyrics to Dixie. They don't even know what they are. And a lot of the people that were leading this were from places like Ohio and outside of the South. It wasn't really about Confederate monuments. It was about being a bunch of idiots running around with torches and shields and pretending that they're a Sparta or something. I have no idea. Those with tiki torches were not motivated by broadening a vision of community, but rather by restricting it. You will not replace us. Jews will not replace us, they chanted. The definition of the word us is key. Again, a bunch of people from Ohio, outside of the South, 
Now, you could say, I mean, Moore's point is that, well, people are rallying around the lost cause, uh, rallying around black civil rights and all these things. Lee becomes a symbol of that. And so it's going to be a magnet for these things across the United States. Lee is going to do that. Well, this is a great tragedy of what's happening, that people are lost, that they would actually go into a fascist ideology, which is ridiculously stupid, and they would be drawn to that. And then they would have these positions because there's no guidance. Why? Because we've forgotten the real Southern tradition. Because we've forgotten the Jeffersonian tradition. As Wendell Berry points out, we've forgotten that. Now it's about these abstractions, which is a byproduct of leftism. By contrast, a Christian vision of membership is a repudiation of blood and soil community over principle. It replaces that not with a set of principles apart from community, but with a new sense of community altogether. So what Moore has done ingeniously here is he's put in this blood and soil, which he's saying is fascist. He says it's fascism. Christianity is against fascism. Well, I, I would agree with that. It is against fascism. But there is still preservation of community. And it's not that Southerners were not accepting, because they were. In fact, I could point out, I could say that Southerners are more accepting than Northerners when it came to having people come in. But the, the key to that was, don't try to change what's here. Come in, be part of the South. They were welcoming. But don't be a Yankee and try to come down here and be a cultural imperialist. Don't be a political Puritan. Don't do that. They accepted people all the time. I guess Russell Moore is not aware that the Siamese twins, for example, they were the original quote-unquote Siamese twins. Their sons fought for the Confederacy. These are Asian Americans. You had people of all kinds of backgrounds, and I pointed this out with Kasim Rashid. You had Muslims fighting for the Confederacy. I mean, you had these things, right? So Jews, large Jewish population fighting for the Confederacy. So these morons chiding, uh, citing, chanting this anti-Semitic nonsense uh, were simply not aware of that part of history. And I think that's important to understand. And then he gets into, of course, he cites some scripture to back up his position. And he says, elsewhere in his work, Barry fully understood and prophetically envisioned that sort of principled community, saying a Christian community. He wrote, for instance, of the valor of coal country people who stood up sometimes alone against mountaintop removal and other ecological devastations. And he noted that change most often comes from the margins, from those who are distant enough from established orthodoxies, that is, established communities, to come back with a renewed vision of other possible futures. So uh, what, what Moore is arguing against here is tradition. Well, then, what if that tradition is anti-Christian? Well, he would say, well, then it's time for us to cite, say the gospel and get the, convert these people. What if they don't want it? And they supplant you and they take, and they, you're gone then. Would you fight for that? Would you fight for your home? Or would that just, oh, we just have to accept all this change and that's okay. What I'm saying here is this is dangerous long-term, what Moore is actually advocating here. In that context, to revere the myth of Robert E. Lee is to claim membership in the lost cause. 
but it is also to deny membership a community that is broader and richer, where the whole body suffers when one person is maimed or raped or kidnapped or enslaved or lynched. So if any of that happens, I mean, does that stuff not happen now in American society? Of course it does. Well, lynching, not really. But do we have modern-day slavery? I mean, are we not seeing people in California and other places where you have large numbers of immigrants from third from Latin America, I would say third-world countries, but I mean, some of these places that are uh, less privileged than the United States, we'll just say that. And they come in here, and these rich people will make them house servants and rip their passports from them and all their papers so they can't leave? Is that not a form of slavery? Or do we know, we know slavery is going on around the world, so is this not the broader community that we have to go out and be a crusade and change all this? I mean, these are the things that he doesn't, he doesn't take into account. Nobody's claiming membership in a lost cause by revering Robert E. Lee. There's no myth of Lee. There's the reality of Lee and who he was as a man. And I point to a series of essays at the Abbeville Institute written not long ago. Four parts on why Christians should admire Robert E. Lee. These were really, really good. And uh, you just go out and do a search for Robert E. Lee and they will come up. Really good stuff. But the piece concludes, when I asked Barry about the Lee picture, he became quiet for a moment and then started talking about other related issues until the conversation was far away from the student's question about the portrait. Soon enough, we were talking about various other matters. But as I was about to leave, the essayist leaned over and said, I'd take that picture down, wouldn't you? So here's the appeal to authority. Here's Barry saying, well, I'd do it, wouldn't you? So therefore, it's right for him to do it. He was right at that time because he validated what I thought. That's the appeal to authority fallacy. And I would like to think that when Barry sees a city free from a monument used to hurt others, how was this monument used to hurt anybody? What did the monument ever do to one person? Nothing. Nothing. The monument never hurt a person. Never hurt one soul. He will see those cheering uh, crowds, black and white and Asian and Hispanic, for what they are and what he's hoped for all along, a community. No, no. It's not, it's, this is the new Virginia idea. There's a new Virginia, but based on what principles, on what, on what traditions, nothing. It's based on nothing. This is the danger in all of this, and I think this is where people like Moore don't realize what they're really doing. And why I think this is such a bad piece. And I thank my, my friend and colleague for sending this to me, and having the opportunity to talk about it. But we could get into the leftist arguments, which are just stupid. But here is a guy, supposedly on the right, spouting the same nonsense that the left does. And with friends like this, who needs enemies? So, that's my position on the, look, the Lee Monument. It was going to come down. It was just a matter of time. When you have New Virginia, this is self-identifying Virginians. When you have this situation... What you're going to have, of course, is these statues come down. The, the horror is that it was chopped into pieces. I mean, this thing should have been preserved. These people are barbarians. They're barbarians. That's the only way to describe them. That statue could have been preserved somewhere else. It could have gone somewhere to a park somewhere. 
in Virginia that, okay, well, we don't agree with this anymore, but here is our history of Virginia. And it's going to be here for people to see. But no, they're just chopping them up now. Putting them at a sewage treatment plant. These are barbarians. They're the mob. They're the lowest of the low for doing these kind of things. And that's who we're fighting against. But when you have people like Russell Moore, who won't call them out for what they really are, that's the problem. So, uh, that's my thoughts on the Lee statue. It was inevitable that it was going to come down, but we should really call this out for what it is. Why do some people get to to say this is offensive and something happens when you couldn't do it the other way? Or we're, we don't we don't take this. There's no there's no consistency in these things. And the end response in all of this should have been from the beginning: no, shut up. And if it's not, this is exactly what we're going to get. In fact, I fully expect in areas like Virginia, where you have New Virginia, and it's dominated by the northern part of the state right around D.C., where nobody's really from Virginia anymore, this kind of stuff is going to continue until it's basically eradicated in that state. Virginia's gone. Old Virginia is gone. Unfortunately, they're not letting any of these things as works of art, which they were. This is on the National Register of Historic Places, this particular monument. Of course, that can't stop you from doing anything. That's how, that's how respected that monument was, its historical value, just chopped into pieces. The barbarians are winning. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 